The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue, and I'm taking you through this first hour on Sunday night, the 20th day of November 2022, in case you're just waking up or uh, maybe you're in Sydney. Uh, who knows where you are, but I'm here. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is here. He's right across the way. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. Glad you could be with us. We've got a good show lined up for you tonight, as always. First, we hope to speak with the former Ranger right-winger Matthew Barnaby. He's got a new book out we'll be talking about from our friends in Chicago Triumph Sports. We're having trouble getting a hold of the young man, but we will continue to try. Regardless, in the second half of the program, we will welcome in the great former shortstop of the Chicago Cubs, Don Kessinger. He will join us. So sit back and relax. Get comfy. Enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, we got some great people, some great sports talk, and the memories will just keep rolling along. I want to uh, mention to you right off the bat, if I can use a uh, baseball term, social media. We are out there. We are on Facebook. You can look us up. You can like the uh, page if you would. Uh, we are on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because all shows are out on the website and can be heard at any time. Uh, we having trouble, as I said, getting a hold of Matthew Barnaby. So what we're going to do now is we're going to forge ahead and talk about the 2023 Contemporary Baseball Era Ballot that's coming up on December 4th with the Baseball Hall of Fame. If you know anything about this and you want to give a call to talk about it, please feel free, 516-623-1240. Again, that's 516-623-1240. Eight former big league players are comprising the Contemporary Baseball Era Player Ballot. Uh, it will be reviewed and voted upon, as I said, December 4th at the Baseball Winter Meetings. The results of the voting will be announced at 8 p.m. on that evening. It's a Sunday evening, December 4th, live on the MLB Network. The players involved that we're speaking about are Albert Bell, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Don Mattingly, Fred McGriff, Dale Murphy, Rafael Palmero, and Kurt Schilling. Those are the candidates of the Contemporary Baseball Era Players Committee considered uh, for the class of 23, 2023, which will go in next July in Cooperstown. And all candidates are alive and well as of this moment. So, uh, And any candidate who receives votes on 75% of the ballots cast by the 16-member committee that's the Contemporary Baseball Era Committee, 
Uh, 16 guys comprise that. Uh, some of them Hall of Famers, some of them writers, some of them broadcasters. They'll earn election to the Hall of Fame, and they'll be inducted, as I said, in Cooperstown on July 23rd, 2023, along with the guys who emerged from the 2023 Baseball Writers Association election, which will be announced on January 24th, 2023. That's what you might consider the regular Hall of Fame vote. That'll take place on the 24th of January. And of course, those, uh, results are let, uh, let, are, um, what am I trying to say? Are publicized on the MLB network that evening. Uh, the Contemporary Baseball Era Players Committee, it's one of three groups eligible for consideration as part of the new ERA committee process, which provides an avenue for Hall of Fame consideration to managers, umpires, and executives, as well as players retired for more than 15 seasons. The Contemporary ERA committee, which is what we're talking about, features two distinct ballots, one for players, one for managers, executives, and umpires. That the uh, one for managers, executive umpires will be considered in the fall of 2023. Uh, the restructuring of the era committee process that uh, took place in the spring of 2022 with the two contemporary baseball era ballots instituted along with the classic baseball era committee which includes all candidates whose primary contributions to the game came prior to 1980. That's how Gill got in uh, last year. They'll meet uh, for the next time in the fall of 2024. That's what we mentioned last week when we were speaking to Al Oliver about his Hall of Fame eligibility. Let's take a look at some of the biographies of the guys that are coming up for election with the Contemporary Era Committee. First of all, Albert Bell. Controversial guy, Albert was. Five-time All-Star, five-time Silver Slugger Award winner. He played 12 seasons with the Indians, White Sox, and Orioles before uh, a hip injury cut short his career. He was a three-time American League RBI champion who finished second or third in the league's MVP play balloting each season from 94 to 96. Albert remains the only player in history to post a 50 home run, 50 double season, having done so in 1995. Albert Bell, uh, a viable candidate, but I don't think he's going in. Next, another controversial guy, one of the steroid boys, Barry Bonds, Major League Baseball's all-time home run leader, and I'm doing the quotation signs with my index and middle finger, uh, with 762 homers. Barry Bonds played 22 seasons with the Pirates and the Giants. He won seven National League MVP awards, eight gold gloves in the outfield. He uh, also set the single-season record for home runs, again, quotation marks, 73 he hit in 2001, and a lot of walks, 232 in 2004. He led the National League in on-base percentage 10 times, 
and paced the league in batting average twice. Barry Bonds, as I said, home run leader, what do you think? Does, does he warrant election to Cooperstown this time around? I kind of feel that it's the Hall of Fame's way of dealing with the PED abusers. They were ignored, basically, by the Baseball Writers Association of America when it came time for election, and now they're being considered in this contemporary era committee. And uh, as I had said in the past many times, these guys with the, with the steroids, they're going to need to be dealt with sooner or later. They were a big part of the game. Some big records were set. Uh, some big numbers put up. Uh, they're going to have to deal with them sooner or later, and I think this is Cooperstown's way of doing just that. Next, Roger Clements, two-time World Series champion with the Yankees. That was in 99 and 2000. He pitched 24 seasons for the Red Sox, the Blue Jays, the Yankees, and the Astros, seven Cy Young Awards. He was named the 1986 AL Most Valuable Player and earned All-Star Game berths in 11 seasons. He led his league in ERA seven times, five-time 20-game winner. Some pretty good statistics, but again, the specter of PEDs enters into the situation. What do you think? Next. Donnie Baseball, Don Mattingly, and I say this, I've said it once, I'll say it again. Yankee fans, I'm sorry, Don Mattingly is not a Hall of Famer. Neither is Thurman Munson. <laughs> Take that. No, 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 not Hall of Famers. Mattingly, his, his uh, statistics do uh, impress, though. Three-time Silver Slugger Award winner and the 1984 AL batting champ, Mattingly played 14 seasons, of course, cut short by injuries his career, all of them with the Yankees. He compiled a 307 batting average, earned six All-Star Game selections, nine Gold Glove Awards at first base, and the 1985 AL MVP Award. He uh, is managed in the big leagues for 12 seasons, most recently cut loose by the Miami Marlins, and he was named the 2020 National League Manager of the Year. Uh, a, a good case for Don Mattingly, but I don't think he makes it. Next is a guy who I think will make it, the crime dog, Fred McGriff. The 1994 All-Star Game MVP, one of the leaders of the 1995 Braves that won the World Series, the only one of those Braves teams that did win a World Series, Fred hit a total of 493 home runs over 19 seasons. 493 home runs is not 500, which is a magic number, but uh, are you going to let seven home runs keep the guy out of Cooperstown? 19 seasons he played with the Blue Jays, the Padres, the Braves, the Devil Rays, which is what they were known then, the Cubs, and the Dodgers. Included eight 100 RBI seasons and six seasons where he finished in the top ten of his league's MVP voting. He led his league in homers twice 
and compiled a 377 career on base percentage. I think it's time for Fred McGriff to enter into the portals of the hallowed Hall of Fame. He was uh, given the shaft basically by the Baseball Writers Association of America, but uh, I think Fred makes it this time. Another guy who's who's uh, garnered serious consideration in the past, uh, a real good guy, has been on the show before, Dale Murphy. He was uh, a seven-time All-Star. He played 18 years with the Braves, the Phillies, and the Rockies. He led the league in home runs twice, in RBIs twice, and slugging percentage twice, while posting 30 home run, 30 steal season in 83. Pretty good. Murphy earned back-to-back Most Valuable Player Awards in the National League, which which is tough to do. Uh, he did that with the Braves in 82 and 83. That was during a five-year stretch where he, he also won five Gold Glove Awards in center field and four Silver Slugger Awards. There was a period of time where Dale Murphy was one of the, if not the best player in baseball. Is that enough for him to enter through the doors of Cooperstown? That's the question that we ask. Uh, it may be his time. I don't think he makes it. Move on to the next guy. Another one of the PED boys, Rafael Palmero. Remember when he, he uh, stood in front of Congress waving his finger like uh, Bill Clinton? That he did not have sex with that. No, that he did not do steroids is what he said to Congress. He lied. He perjured himself. Unbelievable. He posted 10 seasons with at least 100 RBIs and 10 seasons with at least 30 home runs. He finished his career with more walks, 1353, than strikeouts, 1348. Pretty good. Pretty good stat there. Palmero totaled 3,020 hits and 569 homers. So he hits the magic numbers, folks, of 3,000 hits and 500 home runs. But, uh, again, it's tainted by the specter of PEDs. 1,835 RBIs over 20 big league seasons. He played with the Cubs, the Rangers, and the Orioles. He earned four All-Star Game selections, three Gold Glove Awards at first base, and two Silver Slugger Awards. Rafael Palmero, again, 3,000 hits, 500 home runs, but again, the specter of PEDs looms large with Rafael. And I believe this is our final candidate, uh, another guy who may go in this time, Kurt Schilling. Uh, controversial because of his political beliefs, because of his tweets in the past. It, it should make no difference what his viewpoints are. Uh, his uh, statistics speak for themselves. He's only one of four retired pitchers with at least 3,000 strikeouts and fewer than 1,000 walks. He was named uh, to the 2001 World Series co-MVP, and he owns an 11-2 and mark with a 2.23 ERA in 19 postseason appearances. A great man. A great player in the postseason. A uh, great guy to have on your club in the World Series. As we said, the 2001 World Series MVP. 
He won uh, two th- 200 regular 216 regular season games that was over 20 seasons and he played for the Orioles the Astros the Phillies the Diamondbacks and of course the Red Sox we remember the great bloody sock scenario that you can go to Cooperstown and see his bloody sock in the glass case uh, named to six all-star games that's Kurt Schilling so out of these candidates I don't see the uh, PED uh, abusers going in. I do see Fred McGriff going in, possibly Kurt Schilling. Uh, Mattingly will get uh, good support. And uh, other than that, that's, the, that's what I see for the Contemporary Era Committee. Again, that will be voted on on December 4th at the winter meetings. Not sure where they'll be held this year. Uh, the results will be at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on December 4th, uh, live on the MLB Network. And those eight players will be considered for Hall of Fame election for the class of 2023. Now, who you may ask, uh, is up for consideration out of the Baseball Writers Association of America? Well, we will take a look at that. Right after this, stay tuned, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. Yeah, we're back. We're back. We're back. We're back. We're back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. I'm Bill Donahue taking you through the show this evening. Uh, for the few minutes we have left before we bring out Don Kessinger, I just said we will discuss the 2023 eligibles for Hall of Fame election by the Baseball Writers Association of America. Now, uh, the, the new players, uh, we'll talk about those guys. Carlos Beltran is one. A lot of good statistics. Uh, very viable candidate, but will, uh, the, Astros cheating scandal keep him from serious consideration. Matt Cain, Jacoby Ellsbury, nah. Andre Ethier, uh-uh. John Lackey, no. Mike Napoli, no. Johnny Peralta, uh-uh. Francisco Rodriguez, uh, no. Houston Street, no. Jared Weaver, no. And Jason Worth, no. The candidates that, uh, for 2024 coming up. Jose Batista, no. Adrian Beltre, there's a guy who will get serious consideration for the Hall of Fame. 477 homers, 1707 RBIs, uh, among players who appeared in at least 50% of their games at third base. He's the only player in big league history with at least 3,000 hits and 450 home runs. Uh, he played 
2,759 games at third base, which is second on the all-time list. Also eligible in 2024, Bartolo Colon. Poor Bartolo won't make it. Adrian Gonzalez, no. Matt Holiday, no. Jim Johnson, no. Victor Martinez, no. Joe Maurer, you can make a case for Joe Maurer. We'll, we'll uh, take a look. He's got six-time All-Star, five-time Silver Slugger, and uh, he won American League batting title in 2006, 2008, and 2009. The only catcher to win three batting titles, by the way, is Joe Maurer. He spent the last five of his years, however, of his 15 years, primarily at first base. But you could make a good case for Joe Maurer. Brandon Phillips, no. Jose Reyes, no. James Shields, uh-uh. Chase Utley, definitely not. David Wright, he was off to a good start, folks. Might have garnered serious consideration for Cooperstown, but injuries, again, like with Don Mattingly, curtailed his career, David Wright, and he uh, really had a good shot for a while, but it doesn't look like it. Looking down the road in 225, 2025, Melky Cabrera, David Freeze, Carlos Gomez, Carlos Gonzalez, Curtis Granderson, Felix Hernandez, there's a guy who may get uh, serious consideration, King Felix, Edwin Jackson, Adam Jones, Ian Kinsler, Francisco Liriano, Russell Martin, Brian McCann, Kendris Morales, Dustin Pedroia, Martin Prado, Hanley Ramirez, Mark Reynolds, Fernando Rodney, C.C. Sabathia, another guy who would get serious consideration in 2025. Six-time All-Star, 2009 AL Cy Young Award winner. He pitched 19 years, led the AL in victories twice, and strikeout-to-walk ratio twice. He was the 17th member of the 3,000 Strikeout Club, finished with 3,093. And in addition to his uh, 2009 Cy Young Award, he finished in the top five of the Cy Young balloting four times. Game one starter in all three playoff rounds for the Yankees in 2009 to help them win the World Series title that year. CC Sabathia. Here's a guy who's going to walk in. Ichiro Suzuki. Ten-time All-Star, 2001 AL Rookie of the Year, and Most Valuable Player. Played 19 seasons with the Mariners, Yankees, and Marlins. Tied the Major League record with 2,000-plus hits in 10 seasons from 2001 to 10. He set the single-season record with 2,000, uh, sorry, 262 hits in 2004. Ichiro led the AL in hits seven times, batting average twice, and even stolen bases once. He's a 10-time Gold Glove Award winner in right field. He amassed, this is in the American Major Leagues, 3,089 hits along with another 1,278 hits in nine seasons in the Japanese Pacific League. A lot of knocks, folks. Scored 1,420 runs in Major League Baseball and added 509 stolen bases to go with a career 311 batting average. Ichiro Suzuki will skate in first ballot Hall of Famer for sure. 
Rounding out the eligibles in 2025, Troy Tulowitzki and Ben Zobris. Nice ball players, not Hall of Famers. So that's what we're looking at, the uh, new guys on the ballot coming up for the next few years. As uh, I mentioned, Beltron will be an interesting name bandied about in 2023. Not sure if he'll get uh, the consideration needed. Uh, he was a nine-time All-Star and a 99 AL Rookie of the Year. He played 20 years for the Royals, the Astros, of course, the Mets and the Yankees, the Giants, Cards, and Rangers, three-time Gold Glove, two-time Silver Slugger, drove in 100 more runs eight times, topped the 20-homer mark 12 times. His career stolen base success rate, 86.4%, the highest of any player in history with at least 300 steals. Interesting. Had two postseason series in 2004 with four home runs, hit 307 with 16 homers in 65 career postseason games, and, of course, a member of the 2017 Astros World Series team that will go down in history uh, with the Black Sox for uh, perhaps cheating and uh, cheating successfully, although the Black Sox did not. That, my friends, is a look at the Hall of Fame coming up for 2023. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope uh, it cleared up some of your doubts about some of the candidates, and uh, we'll look forward to uh, to the uh, election, the announcement on December 4th, and the announcement coming up of the Baseball Writers Association of America in January. That uh, will do it for our Hall of Fame analysis. We'll be back in one moment, and we're going to be talking to the great former shortstop of the Chicago Cubs, and his name, of course, Don Kessinger. Stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, we are back. You don't start talking until the drums come in, Brian. Right? You got to hear those drums before we start talking. Now, on GBB tonight, we hope everyone's having a wonderful weekend. Sports Talk New York, Bill Donahue with you this evening. Of course, the award winners were announced this week in Major League Baseball. The Cy Young, the manager of the year, of course, Buck Walter in the National League. The most valuable player, Aaron Judge of the Yankees, takes that with Goldschmidt of the Cardinals. Free agency uh, looming and uh Going great guns. We stoke the flames of the hot stove when we can here on the show. And we also do that by reminiscing about the the grand glory days past in this great pastime uh, by welcoming in guests like our next one, 
like I always like to say, I like to make my baseball cards come to life for you folks, and that's what we're going to do with our next guest. He played as a shortstop from 64 to 79 for the Cubs, the Cards, and the White Sox. Six-time All-Star defensive specialist, but he can hit. He spent the majority of his career as the Cubs' starting shortstop in the late 60s and early 70s. He, he was considered one of the best shortstop in the game. He's also notable for being the last player manager in the American League. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Don Kessinger. Don, good evening. Good evening, Bill. How are you tonight? We're doing well, Don. We're doing well. Hope all's well by you. It is. Thank you very much. Had a nice day. Outstanding. Outstanding, Don. Let's let's get right to it now. You were a four-sport All-State and All-America athlete in high school. Uh, you went on to the University of Mississippi. You had great success at Ole Miss. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. I had a great time, and uh, yeah. So, but I appreciate you at least acknowledging that. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. No problem. Now, now, when you were a youngster, Don, who were your heroes and and your your sports teams that you followed? Well, I grew up in Arkansas, and uh, in those days, back in the day, you know, we, we weren't very many teams in our area, but the one we could follow all the time was the St. Louis Cardinals. Mm-hmm. And I was uh, always, my favorite guy was Stan Musial. Of course, he's a good one to have as a favorite. Right. <laughs> yeah, the man. Now... 1965, that would mark the first of nine consecutive years in which you were paired alongside Glenn Beckert. Tell us a little bit about uh, Glenn Beckert and the combination, the keystone combination with, with Glenn at second base. I know that pe- people may remember the uh, Hall of Fame combination, double play combination of Tinkers to Evers to Chance, but there was a time in Chicago when Kessinger Beckert to Banks was the big thing. Let's talk about that infield, Don. Well, I was blessed to play with some great guys. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Glenn and I came along at the same time. We were both rookies uh, in 65. And uh, and we so, therefore, we kind of grew up together, if you will. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> one of our coaches on the Cubs that year was uh, Alvin Dark. Mm-hmm. And he was a you know, a great, uh, you New, York, New Yorkers know that. He right. was a great shortstop himself. And uh, Alvin used to take Beck and me out uh, early before, I mean, yeah, Coach played all day games, as you probably remember. And mm-hmm. But he would take us out early before batting practice, maybe 20 minutes or so each day. And uh, where there's, you know, you weren't dodging line drives and all that stuff during batting practice trying to work on things and trying to learn at that level. And uh, so Beck and I got a lot of uh, individual work in together, and, and also certainly we learned to play together and where the other one wanted the ball and that type thing. So we were kind of blessed to have a great defensive shortstop himself working with us. Sure were, yeah. I didn't know Alvin Dark was a coach with the Cubs. Another guy that I did not know was a coach with with the Chicago Cubs, Don, was a gentleman who uh, really helped you with your hitting, and that's former Brooklyn Dodger Pete Reeser. Yeah, Pete Reeser, what a guy. 
And uh, so you're right. I mean, you're absolutely right. Pete was a, a really good guy to work with everybody, but with young guys too. And uh, so, uh, and, and you know, he was a real, what do I don't say a bulldog, but he was. He was, uh, <laughs> you know, he was one of those players that just played all 100% all the time, which we all should do and try to do, but he did, I think. But uh, he was a great guy and, and spent a lot of time with us. He, uh, as you say, a, a bulldog who went all out, Don. I don't know if you know, but he had a relationship with the with the cement wall at Ebbets Field. Uh, he, <laughs> yeah. yeah. He, he, he told me about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was going to catch that ball whether that ball or the wall was there or not, huh? <laughs> yeah, that's it. Now, now you uh, you only hit one way, and then Leo Leo DeRocher encouraged you to become a switch hitter. He did, Well, he did. It was an interesting story, and uh, it doesn't matter to me who got credit. That's beside the point. I yeah, I. Uh, in fact, I guess I'll go back to use Alvin Dark again a little bit. My first year, you know, I was hitting about 200, and we had about a week left in the season. And, you know, I wanted to hang around big league, so I was trying to figure out how we're going to do this thing. And uh, But I asked Alvin one day, sitting on the bench before we game started or anything, and I just said, Alvin, you know, I'd like to really try to switch it. And uh, he said, well, let me make a suggestion to you. I said, okay. So he said, go back. Uh, I was at that time living uh, in Oxford, Mississippi, where University of Mississippi is located. And he said, go back to Ole Miss. And uh, in the winter, he said, don't say anything now. We've only got a week left in the season, and that's not going to change anything. Well, he said, go back and work in the off season. Get in a gym, get a tennis ball, have somebody throw to you hitting left-handed from up close and throw hard. And he said, because the biggest thing you're going to have to, and I hadn't really thought about it, he said, the biggest thing you're going to have to learn is to get out of the way of the ball because mm-hmm. you're so used to falling one way to avoid a ball up and in, and now you're going to have to fall a little different way. And so, you know, it was a very wise thing, of a great suggestion, and I did just that. And... uh Came back and uh, worked on it and felt reasonably reasonably good about it, not to have ever tried it. And uh, so I went to, uh, we had an early camp We in spring training that year in Escondido, California, of all places. And uh, so I went out to that early camp for us young guys, I guess. And I told Lou Klein, who was our batting uh, coach, there and we had just hired, as you said, Leo DeRocher. Leo would come in as a new manager and he wasn't at that early camp. And, uh, but I said, Lou, I told him what I was thinking. I thought I could try. I'd like to try to do that. I thought it would help me. And he said, well, you know, let me talk to Leo about it and, uh, I'll get back to you. I said, oh, okay. So, a couple of days later, he came back and said, well, you know, they kind of want you to just work on your right-handed hitting and go the other way with the ball more, and we'll work on that. And I said, well, okay, if that's what you want. So that's what we did. And we started the season, and it was in uh, May, mid-May now. It started in April, of course, and it was mid-May. And uh, without dragging this out, 
uh, we were in batting practice, and Leo came up to me during batting practice, and he said, Hey, Kiss, um, I just heard yesterday that you had asked to switch it this spring. And I said, Well, yeah, I want to try it. And he said, I think it's a great idea. Let me see you take a few swings. So I got in there and hit, and of course, as only Leo could sometimes say things, when I got through hitting, he said, heck, kid, well, you swing better that way than you do the other way. <laughs> so anyway, he said, let's work on it. Mm-hmm. And that's how it started. And uh, But I, boy, I give him a lot of credit because it wasn't easy. And right. we kind of went from about went from about 230 to 190, and I walking off the field one day and said, hey, Skip, I, you know, you think we ought to wait next spring to work on this? <laughs> and he said, no, no, man. He said, we're not going anywhere this year, so just stay with it. It'll be good. So anyway, so I give him all the credit in the world. There you go, yeah. It was, yeah, it was tough, and he uh, he stayed with me. He, so, said, he and, did. You know, by by the last, by the second half of that season, I think the second half I hit around three hundred and so uh, <clears throat> two sixty or so overall. Anyway, it uh, it was evident that that was a good thing for me to try to do. Certainly, we're speaking with Don Kessinger tonight on the program. Now, I want to talk about '69. First, the All Star Game. Uh, there's that famous picture of you guys. Uh, lining up during introductions on the foul line down at RFK Stadium in, in Washington, D.C. Uh, there, there's so many. There, there's Hall of Famers galore. Uh, it, it's just a great who's who. You, and of, of course, uh, you could tell it's 69 because everybody's got the centennial year patch on. Now, that was a year that the entire Cubs infield was on the All-Star team. And that, that includes, of course, the great Hall of Famer Ron Santo. Now we remember Ron Don uh, for his clicking the, his heels out at, out at Wrigley Field after every Cubs win. Tell us a little about Ron Santo. Oh yeah, well we didn't cut you quite enough times toward the end of that year. You know, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, it, it uh, but Ronnie, you know, people got the wrong impression of that. Ronnie wasn't trying to show anybody up or. He was just, he's a very excitable guy. He had a lot of energy and, and, uh, you know, it was tough. We were winning. People were excited and our, our dressing room was way down in the left field corner. So after every game, we'd go from the dugout, we'd go all the way down the field and down the left field line to, to our dressing room. And it was just those, it's one of those really exciting days. Ronnie was running toward the, thing and just in excitement he jumped up and clicked his heels and it became a big deal i mean people saw it and and, uh, fans loved it our players were laughing about it and then other teams kind of got the idea that he was showing them up and which honestly wasn't the truth Mm -hmm. and uh but uh but that's what happened and it it was kind of a neat thing for us but it wasn't i guess other teams didn't like it so much yeah, I, I don't think the Mets appreciated it. I know that. Yeah. But, uh. Well, if we'd, not, if we'd known we were going to make them finish like they did, he'd quit clicking his heels. <laughs> yeah, that's true, Don. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, we'll, we, we, as we spoke about during the week, I want to talk about the Black Cat. That was September 9th, 1969. The Black Cat makes his appearance at Shea Stadium. Uh, Mets and Cubs. 
you were in the batter's box, Don. Well, uh, you know, I'm being candid. I don't remember exactly whether I was in the batter's box or in the own deck circle, but I really I have to tell you this. I'd like to know. I I kind of admire that guy that could get that black cat in the stadium. <laughs> You know, how do you get that cat in the stadium, put it down by our dugout, and that sucker walk right across between our dugout and the field? I mean, that's amazing. <laughs> yes. and, uh, what, what, so, what a training yeah. job, right, Don? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just like to know how that, guy, how that guy did that, you know. And, uh, and, and it's like I, you know, like I was telling you, I'm uh, I, I'm not that so. I mean, you got to be a little superstitious to play baseball, I think. But I, I'm not that superstitious that I thought that black cat had anything to do with the outcome of this thing. But I can tell you this, the Mets had some players that had something to do with the outcome, and I wasn't as worried about the black cat as I was Seaver and Kuzman and those guys <laughs> yeah, through the yeah. ball, all that, and, and uh, A.G. and Cleon Jones, you know, all those guys, yeah. guys that uh, I was more concerned about. Now, now, how did you feel? I, I remember Bill Hands, God rest his soul. He used to live out here on Long Island. Uh, knocked back Tommy Agee, and then, then the next inning, uh, Santos steps in, and Kuzman plunks him. And w- what were you guys thinking at that point? Well, you know, that's kind of the way it was back then. If you're going to knock them, their guys down, the next hitter's got a little problem. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so and and yes, did we think that that uh, that Coos did that? Uh, yeah, he did what he thought he was doing to protect his hitters. Right. I don't think he. I don't think he threw it in Santos' head or anything. No. But, you know, he he uh, certainly let it be known he knew what was going on in the game. He did. Yeah, there was that, that was a purpose play. That's for sure, Don. Now, I believe it was Bill James who first cited Leo's uh, method of using you, you you regular guys every day without any rest. Was that a factor in what happened to the Cubs later that year? Well, you know, there are people that think it does. I mean, some of our players, I, I think, maybe a little bit. But... Uh, you know, the crazy thing is, I mean, I want, I played every day and I didn't want anybody else playing. I right. Mean, I wanted to play. And, uh, you know, you let a, <laughs> you know, you let a guy in there, he may get three or four hits and then have to play another day. And, uh, so, you know, I just, uh, I always wanted to play. And if Leo ever asked me, you want, you need a day off, I would say, heck no, man, we're winning a pennant. Let's go. Right. And so, you know, it's just the way, that's just the way we were. We wanted to play, we wanted to win. <clears throat> and so, I mean, yes, I would have to say that we probably play in all day games, playing in the sun every day. We might have been a little more tired than some other teams. Uh, I had a little comparison for that. When I left the Cubs to go to the Cardinals and play and then back to the White Sox, we're in the same city. We played night games a lot. And the truth is, I wasn't as tired at the end of the year then as I probably was with the Cubs. But I, I certainly, saying that, don't misunderstand that. I'm not blaming Leo DeRocher 
or play in us. Gracious, we want. That's what you work out. You work for to be the guy that gets to play. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, I see your point, Don. We're speaking with Don Kessinger tonight. And I want to ask you before we move on about uh, the game that Seaver pitched, uh, his imperfect game. Uh, how, how, how was it facing Seaver that night, Don? Oh, it was just a, it was just fun. Yeah, right. (laughs) Yeah. None of us ran to the plate to get to hit, you know. Yeah. Uh, now he had great stuff, but he had great stuff most times he went out there. And, uh, but he did that particular game. And I think Jimmy Qualls for us, a young guy got a base hit in the, maybe the eighth inning, was it? That was the ninth inning. Well, ninth inning. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, he, he was two, on. two outs away, Don. He was two outs away from a, yeah, I know it was, yeah. I knew we thought he had it that night, you know. Yeah. And, uh, I tell you, when a great pitcher has it, you're in trouble. I mean, yeah. it's just the way it is. I, I played when Sandy Koufax pitched his only perfect game was against us. And, I mean, there wasn't any doubt that he had it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, it's just, and, and, you know, it, it's not that you don't think you're going to hit. You always think you're going to be the guy that's going to get that base hit. Somewhere along the way, we're going to get one. But, and it was that way all the night receiver but he just didn't make mistakes that night he just threw balls on the black however many miles per hour it was and had that good slider and i mean he just had it man and you got to admire them and uh and and just give them credit for what they did they beat us they whipped us you know yeah, that, that that was uh that was a magical year. There'll never be another one like that for us anyway, Don. So uh we're we're certainly appreciative of that. But uh Bill Veck, Bill Veck when you moved on to the White Sox, uh named your player manager. Now I read somewhere, Don, that you were the manager at Comiskey when they had the disco demolition night. <laughs> you read it right. Yeah. <laughs> it uh Oh no, that, that was, first of all, let me say I appreciate Bill Vick and, uh, you know, I love the guy. A Hall of uh, Famer, yeah. Yeah, I, I love the guy. He, he loved baseball. He, he felt his job was to entertain the fans till the game, till it was time for the game and then he didn't want to do anything to interfere with the game. But he, he, but he did that night a little bit the disco demolition because he, it was a promotion that was absolutely too popular. <laughs> they, uh, well, it was, you know, you got disc, disc, disco stations and rock stations that were kind of button heads at that time. Right. And the, uh, yeah, and a rock station had a pro- promotion going on that night that if you brought a disco record with you, you could get in for, I don't remember what it was, a few bucks anyway. And, uh, so, they, and then between games of a doubleheader with Detroit, they were going to, uh, blow up, put all the disco records on a pile and out in center field and blow them up. So it was disco <laughs> demolition night. And, right. uh, but you know, uh, Bill, you could, you, you just knew we had a problem that night because they got there, or it was probably 50,000 there and 25,000 were there to, for disco demolition and 25,000 were there to watch a doubleheader baseball game. And, right. uh, yeah, and, and, but you just could feel the, the tension and feel the, uh, it's just different and you knew that something 
I mean, it just wasn't right. And between games of a doubleheader, they, they, they were supposed to bring out a, a, uh, disco DJ named Steve Dahl. And he was going to be the guy that would take the microphone and all that. And he came out from center field and with a microphone and stood out in the middle of center field and the fans, well, being very candid, the fans from the time they got there were chanting, Disco sucks. Right. Disco sucks. <laughs> I mean, it was, oh, it was, and you're thinking, oh, maybe this isn't good. This isn't good. And, uh, so when the first game was over and Steve Dahl, when he came out from center field, I was hoping he would be on a tux or something, but no, he came out and battled fatigues. <laughs> and he, yeah. And I took our guys through the dugout and into our locker room and locked the door. Wow. And yeah. 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 And they, I, I'm going to say there were six or 7,000 fans that piled out of the stands and were on the field with torches and all that kind of stuff. It was scary. And, uh, they call, I had a phone, the phone rang in the locker room and they said, Bill Vick wants to talk to you. And, uh, I mean, excuse me, I'm sorry. Said the umpires want to talk to you and they want to have a meeting with you and Bill Vick. And I said, okay, where is Bill? <laughs> they said he's out in the middle. He's standing at second base <laughs> trying, to, <laughs> trying to get people back in the stand. Oh man. So I, I said, okay. So I went out there and ran out to second base and, uh, and I just, and he's standing at second base with a mic saying, would you please return to your seats? Would you please return to your seats? And I said, Bill, we've got an issue. The umpires want to see us. And he said, we're not forfeiting. I said, Bill, I don't have anything to do with this, but no, I agree with you. And anyway, we went in to meet with them and they told us, they wanted us to postpone the game, postpone the second game of the doubleheader. We're not telling you to forfeit the game. We just won't play it another time because it's just we can't play it with this. Right. Bill said, "No, we'll have it ready. We'll have the field ready," and he did. And he got they got the field ready, and I probably I bet we had an hour, hour and a half between games trying to get that thing ready, and. uh Umpires walked out on the, walked out on the field and said, game's over, unplayable field. And so, supposedly we weren't going to have to forfeit, but for some reason the league office didn't know that. We got a message the next day that we had had to forfeit the game. So, uh, you know, that wasn't real good, but, uh, but, you know, it wasn't the only game we lost that year. Right, yeah. Oh, that that one blew up in Bill's face a little bit, it and did. and also the the uh, nickel beer. Uh, that <laughs> that was another one. <laughs> well, oh. you know the problem is you you just can't have a nickel beer night and ball night on the same night. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, unbelievable. In a few yeah, minutes. It, it, in the few seconds we have, Don, I want to ask you, we spoke about Sandy, we spoke about Tom Terrific. Who was the toughest you faced for you? Well, certainly, certainly I would say Seaver. I mean, yeah, Tom Seaver was one of them. Uh, that night, Sandy Koufax was, no yeah. doubt. And, uh, 
But, you know, there's probably five or six guys you kind of have to put. It's hard to separate a Bob Gibson or Steve Carlton or Tom Seaver or one Marischal. I mean, you know, you just, you, you, I don't know how you say one's so much better than the other every time, but certainly they're all good and you'd love to have them. But, uh, but I, you know, we're talking about New York now. I, I certainly would put Seaver up there with anybody. Well, what an era, Don, that you, that you played in. With you, every guy you mentioned was a Hall of Famer. Yeah. I mean, to, to face Carlton, Marischal, Gibson, Seaver, uh, and then if you had to face Fergie Jenkins, there's another guy, all Hall of Famers. It, it was really a wonderful era in baseball. It really was. And praise the Lord, I played behind Fergie. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, but... Uh... Now, it was a great time. I, I never forget the All-Star Games. And first, my first All-Star game in Houston, 1968. Yeah, that was the, the one-nothing game. Yeah, I rode that bus out there, got in, sat down in my locker, getting ready to put my uniform on and look around that locker room. And there's Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and Roberto Clemente and, and Gibson and and, and, you know, I'm thinking, what am I, how did I get here? You know, and, uh, <laughs> still not sure about that, but, uh, but I didn't want to give it back to them. I no. can tell you that. Well, uh, but no, it was great. It was just watch those guys play and, and all that. It's just, it's just remarkable. Wonderful. Well, Don Kessinger, it's been a pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here in New York. Uh, we wish you all the best and a happy Thanksgiving to you and yours, Don. Well, thank you so very much. It's awfully nice of you to let me reminisce a little bit and I appreciate it. And I, and, you know, I have great, uh, you know, I, I want to thank, I mean, seriously, I congratulate those Mets at 69 because we thought we had that thing. Yeah. Oh, I'm just glad you didn't, Don. That's it. <laughs> I know. I know. I get it. I get it. <laughs> you, you take care. That's Don Kessinger, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York.